asked, how often do you judge people? Because we do all the time, don't we? I remember I was at my brother-in-law's wedding. I had performed the wedding. It was out in Montana. He's a cop out in Kalispell. And it was right by Glacier National Park. I had performed the wedding. I didn't know a soul there except for Elizabeth's family. And I saw this guy in the back, and he looked like a drifter, all tatted up, kind of a piecemealed clothing, one of those really thin, like, western ties. And I didn't think anything of him. I thought, you know, he was maybe the homeless guy that my brother-in-law brought to the uh, wedding. I had no idea who this guy was, but I noticed him while I was doing the wedding. And then at the reception, I got to the reception, and he came right up to me after a few minutes, and he said, you quoted Mikel Foucault. (laughs) And I said, I did. And he said, what do you know about him? And I told him a little bit of what I knew about Foucault. And he said, I said, what do you know about Foucault? And he said, well, I have my philosophy degree from UCLA, and then I got my law degree from Harvard, and I'm here working with the state of Montana to help bring rights to the Native Americans. And then we had an hour-long conversation about philosophy. I had no idea. I totally judged him. Totally judged him. You see people downtown that look homeless, don't we totally judge them? You see somebody driving too fast, don't you totally judge them? We're in a world where we work from lesser to greater. You look at your phone and you swipe left or right all the time, just judging, 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 judging. You see somebody tweet 140 characters, and you immediately, from whatever this tweet is, just 140 characters, assume that they're conservative, assume that they're liberal, assume that they're all of these things. You just assume all the way up. We judge people all the time. We presume things all the time that maybe are or are not true. But it's very rare to give anybody these days the benefit of the doubt, just to trust their intentions. Now, if we're honest, we also judge God. We presume when he doesn't answer our prayer the way that we want it to, that he must not be working for our benefit. We presume that as soon as we say something and we kind of utter it into existence, if he doesn't kind of come down from the cosmic heavens and answer our prayers, then he must not love us. He must not care for us. He must not have our best intentions in mind. And so the title of this sermon is Presumptive Prayer because I want you to start presuming that God is actually always working. And he's always working for your benefit. James chapter 5, just the first verse. 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. This is an invitation to bring God into every emotion that you feel because we want to presume, here's the first point, we want to presume that prayer helps in all circumstances. Whether you're suffering or whether you're finding yourself in an incredible amount of joy, uh, we want to presume that prayer helps with both of those. Hannah Moore was born in 1757. Uh, She was born kind of a trust fund kid, and she had a lot of money. Uh, She actually was kind of a debutante in London. She got to know uh, John Newton and some of the other people in London and became a believer. And in her 20s, she retired from society, got fed up with all of the stuff that was happening in London, how everybody was just about them, and she retired to the countryside in Bristol and spent the rest of her time uh, trying to work against the slave trade industry. And Hannah Moore, once she retired in her 20s and went down to Bristol, uh, at that moment she got really sick and spent the rest of her life uh, working with her own affliction. She writes, affliction is the school in which virtues are acquired and in which great characters are formed. It is the spiritual gymnasium in which the disciples of Christ are trained in robust exercise hardy exertion, and severe conflict. We do not hear of military heroes in peacetime, nor the most distinguished saints in the quiet and unmolested periods of church history. The courage in the warrior and the devotion in the saint continue to survive, ready to be brought into action when perils beset the country or trials assail the church. But it must be admitted that in long periods of inaction, both are susceptible to decay. If you're suffering, 
and many of you are, pray. If you're suffering, learn that the Lord is working at that very moment in you in a way that he might not otherwise be able to work in you. If we're suffering, we must learn, first of all, not just to seek comfort, but to go to the Lord with our suffering, to bring it before him and to pray. And then if we're cheerful, sing songs of praise. I've told you this story before. And I remember I told you this story before because I remember some of your visceral reactions when I told this story. Uh, a number of years ago, 1861, Henry Brown was a slave and they stuffed him, he was six foot one, and they stuffed him into a four foot by three foot box and nailed it shut and labeled it dry goods <laughs> and then shipped it to Maryland. And he paid $40 for him to be shipped. And when they got to Maryland, there's a distributor named William Still who opened up the box. And uh, Henry, now Box Brown is what they called him the rest of his life. He left in slavery and he opened himself up in Maryland in freedom. Spent the rest of his life as a freed slave. You know what he did the first time they opened the box? You know what was the first thing he did? He sang a psalm. You know what he's saying? Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. The first thing that Henry Box Brown did when he got his freedom was say, thank you, Jesus. You heard me. I'm now free. If you're suffering, pray. If anyone's cheerful, let them sing praise because let's presume that prayer helps in all circumstances. And prayer and praise are two sides of the same coin. You remember Henry Light? Uh, he wrote, Abide With Me. He also wrote, Jesus, I my cross have taken. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition, God in heaven are still my own. But remember that last uh, phrase of the fourth verse? Faith to sight and prayer to praise. That one day, friends, we won't have to have faith in Jesus anymore because we'll see him. We will have the sight of him. And all the prayers that we're praying right now will eventually turn into praise. And so if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing songs of praise. Let me ask you this question. Where do you struggle uh, with feeling the most distant from the Lord? Is it when you're doing very, very well and you forget at that moment how much Jesus loves you? Or when you're suffering, you forget at that moment how much Jesus loves you? See, what Christianity wants to do is to bring all of your life together, whether you're suffering or whether you're joyful, to let all of it be lived, Coram Deo, in, in front of God. And so here's the second point. We're gonna move quickly to today. Presume prayer can bring healing. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, this is a practice that we do at Mitchell Road, just so you know. Uh, many times people have come to the elders and say, would you uh, pray for us? And we would, if you're in a situation uh, where you want the elders to pray for you, we would be delighted uh, to do that. We've seen God work in wonderful and unique ways. And this uh, anointing with oil is this a biblical metaphor that we see all the way through the Old Testament, which is a sign of healing and a sign of refreshment. You might need to remember that this is a Middle Eastern society. They don't live in the humid South like we do, right? So everything for them is chapped. It's just wind all the time. And so we don't really understand this, this concept of oil being refreshing. But think of it when you're in the middle of winter and your lips are super chapped and you can't find any chapstick and finally your wife lends you some chapstick out of the generosity of her soul and you put the chapstick on, like that moment of refreshment... That's what the oil is. It's, it's that sign of refreshment for people who are just chapped everywhere in life that God wants to heal and God wants to restore because we want to presume that prayer can heal. Now, let's be honest. There are people who had plenty of faith in the Bible 
who weren't healed. Paul, three times, 2 Corinthians 9, three times I pleaded with the Lord, take this from me, and he never did. Timothy had a stomach illness. Uh, he had plenty of faith. Paul had plenty of faith, not healed. Uh, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes to uh, the church, and he says, I'm leaving with you Trophimus and Erastus, who are both ill. And in other words, he says, look, we're all ill here, and I'm leaving them with you, and they're ill too. So they had plenty of faith. Paul had plenty of faith, and they weren't healed. So there are times in the Bible that we see people praying, asking, pleading with the Lord, and they aren't healed. Then there are times when people who had faith are healed. You might think of the uh, bleeding woman, Mark 5, who had the courage to reach her hand through that crowd and just touch Jesus' cloak and just wanted to scurry off into obscurity. I get her. <laughs> she didn't want any attention. She just wanted to get healed. And remember what Jesus said? He turned to her, he found her, and he said, Daughter, go in faith. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. You might remember blind Bartimaeus. Uh, he was calling out, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And all the other disciples were, no, shh, be quiet, be quiet. We're trying to have a worship service here. What are you doing? You're disturbing everything. He kept crying out. Jesus finally stopped. He turned to him and he said, what do you want for me to do? What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said, go your way. Your faith has made you well. So here's the problem with prayer. We see people who have faith and are healed. We see people that also have faith and aren't healed. So what do we do? This is why sometimes Christianity is mocked. Christianity is mocked sometimes because of March Madness. Because let me explain. Did y'all see the Furman game? Not the one yesterday. Let's forget that one. <laughs> the prior one. And let me be honest here. Uh, all of Eliza's family are basically UVA grads. Her dad went to law school. Her sister went to grad school there. Everybody on her side went to UVA. Um, so I picked UVA in my bracket, but I rooted for Furman in my heart, just for the record. <laughs> and I should have picked them in my bracket. We were all watching the game. Uh, not all of us. There's five or six of us watching the game around my computer here at the church. Didn't get anything done for like that 30 minutes. Everybody kind of gathered. And do you remember the picture? Like 30 seconds left, do you remember the girl? There was a girl just trying to usher the Holy of Holies down to the Colosseum. <laughs> she had her hands up and she was just, I mean, she was intercessory praying on behalf of the Paladins. I mean, I so wish that was recorded. Dear Jesus, I know I haven't talked to you since my junior year in high school, and I, I know I've done some things these last couple years, but if I've ever asked for anything, I promise I will become a complete nun if you just help the paladins win today. I mean, she had her hands up, praying, 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 and Furman won. And then a couple days later, Farley Dickinson who let's just be, how many people had to Google Farley Dickinson? <laughs> they showed the last 30 seconds of that game. Another girl, Purdue Boilermaker shirt, hands literally clasped like this, praying, 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 and they lost. So from an outside perspective, people look at that and they say, really Christians? Is that what we're doing? How do, how do we judge, did, did that girl have more faith than the other girl? Is this whole thing, is that just what we do as Christians? You actually ask the Holy of Holies to intervene in a basketball game? Is that what we're doing? And, and both of those things were on public display. That's what people are receiving, right? If you're not a believer, you're looking at all of that. You're trying to figure it out. People have been fascinated with trying to understand how prayer works. Matter of fact, there have been two major studies about prayer academically. In 2003, Duke did a study that included 750 uh, cardiac patients. And they had blind groups, they had control groups, they had people praying, you know, just like you would do with a study. And they, they came to the conclusion that we can't tell any difference. 
And then in 2006, the Templeton Foundation also did a long study, and this involved 1,800 coronary patients. And they came to the conclusion that we can't tell a difference in prayer either. Richard Sloan from Columbia University Medical School underscored the study, and they said they have absolutely no idea how much prayer uh, how much individuals in the prayer groups received. If we can't know that, we can't draw any conclusions whatsoever about intervention. And in the abstract from Duke, it said, we believe that the research has led us nowhere and that future research, if any, will forever be constrained by the scientific limitations that we outline. In other words, how could we possibly judge what's working and what's not working here? We can't. All of our scientific research, we get to the point where, for the Duke study, they were trying to figure out, does this person receive significant healing within a period of 30 days? So they're limiting the study just to 30 days. Does something happen within 30 days that we can tell and we can figure out? So why do we pray? Well, we pray because God is more mysterious and more loving and more holy than we could ever imagine. We pray because we get to be his children, and he's a father that loves to give good gifts. We pray because he asks us to. We pray because we're supposed to live this life together with him. We pray because we can't possibly know how he's working or what he's doing. I had a member of this church this past Christmas that said, Andy, would you pray for me over Christmas? All of my family's coming to town. Every time this happens, it breaks apart. It's absolutely a train wreck. I saw her uh, after New Year's. I said, how'd it go? She said, it was awful. <laughs> and just like every year, an absolute train wreck. But your prayers worked. I said, well, how do they work? She said, I had joy the whole time. I was at peace the whole time. I enjoyed Christmas. Yeah, my parents poured shame on me. Yes, my sister kind of broke apart. Yes, we had this blowout on Christmas Eve. But the whole time I enjoyed who Jesus was, although nothing changed, your prayers worked. And that's why we pray. We presume that it's going to help and that it's going to heal, not presume the opposite. And we trust God with the results. Now prayer can develop community. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it's working. Now one thing I do want to highlight is the end of 15 and the beginning of 16 kind of go together. If he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. And then confess your sins to one another. Because here's the deal. Sin can actually make us sick. You might remember um, Psalm 30, my bones waxed old. Or if we just go from the secular perspective, you probably remember the famous book from Bessel uh, van der Kolk, which is um, Your Body Keeps Score, a long study of how trauma or stress, long-term stress, actually affects your physical body which is the same thing that the Psalms would say. And in this day and age, they used to over-spiritualize sickness. Now we kind of under-spiritualize sickness. But one way to health is to confess your sins to one another. And I want you to think through this. What sins would it be good for you to confess? Eyeball to eyeball to another individual that you trust and that you love. Because there's healing there. Uh, in Luke chapter five, I don't know if you remember, the paralytic was brought to Jesus. You know, they, they made a room, they brought down this paralytic. They believed in Jesus so much <laughs> that they found a man who was paralytic and they thought, if we could just get him to Jesus, he might be able to help him. That's amazing. And so much they believed in who God was. If we, we've got this guy, he can't walk, he can't do anything. If we get him to Jesus, we're going to lower him through the roof. And they did. And remember what Jesus said? He said, man, your sins are forgiven. And they said, who is this that he would be able to forgive sins? And Jesus, knowing what they had in their heart, said, 
Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to rise and walk? And which is easier to say? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because uh, nobody can keep account of that. It's just a statement. But Jesus said, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose before them, picked up what he had been lying on. He went home glorifying God, and they all said, we have seen extraordinary things today. But first, before his paralysis was cured, Jesus said, I want to forgive your sins. See, some of us are sick. Some of us are struggling, uh, not just because we're physically sick, but because there's a sin that we're keeping in our lives somewhere along the way. There's a, a stress. There's an unconfessed shame. There's, a, there's guilt. There's all of this pent-up sin that we're not getting out and bringing before the Lord. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they were sick because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead because they lied. You might remember uh, the man who was by the pool, and he, he was waiting to get healed. Uh, and Jesus said, uh, I can heal you now. And he basically did. Jesus went back and found him later and said, stop sinning or else more might happen to you. It might get worse for you. And so here's the beautiful thing about Christianity. If we go back to verse 16, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you might be healed. You know what the beauty of Christianity is? It is the opposite of a cancel culture. It's this beautiful community where it's a confession culture where you're invited to share the deepest, darkest, most troubling things about your soul and we accept you anyway. And we heal you. And we tell you it's going to be okay. And we can, in this community, you can presume that when you confess, you get grace, not canceled. You can presume that you get love, not shame. That's what happens in Christianity. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. It's this beautiful picture. You see, in the culture that we live in right now, we can't possibly digest everything that's happening on a macro level, can we? We see all the things on Twitter. We see all the things on news. And we can't possibly process it all. You know what we need in the future? Not macro cultures, but micro cultures. Little pockets of people bringing healing to one another by confessing our sins eyeball to eyeball to each other and extending grace and love and mercy. That's what we need. We need to learn that if we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, that we will be healed. It's a beautiful picture of how community works. So let me ask you, when was the last time you confessed to somebody? You got a, I have a couple of... Um, voice messages on my phone that I haven't deleted. Uh, one for my daughter. Can't even think about that one. She gave me the sweetest message on my birthday after she called me an old man, but we got past that. <laughs> uh, and I, I just can't, I can't bring myself to delete it. I just can't delete it. I listen to it every other day and uh, cry. Uh, uh, another is from a friend in town that I barely know, but one time he came to my office. He doesn't go to this church. He came to my office and he said, my pastor's not available. Can I come to your office and confess? And I said, bring it on. And he did. And he confessed for like 30 minutes, maybe an hour. And my, my love and respect for him only increased. And he drives up and down East North Street all the time. And usually when he's at this, uh, oh, at this way, when he's at this light, he'll sometimes call me if it's a red light and leave me a message. And he'll often say, Andy, thank you so much for being there and just showing me Jesus. You get the opportunity in this life to show people the love of Jesus. Do you realize how amazing that is? That you and I, because you understand the grace of God, get the chance to distribute the grace of God to other people and to extend mercy and forgiveness. Matter of fact, when pastors talk to each other about whether we're gonna take another church or another call, one of the things that we'll say that we do 
is go to the search committee and confess all of your sins. And if they respond with grace, then you probably have a safe place to go. And if they don't respond with grace, then you know what work you have to do when you're there. But the church should be a place where we can confess our sins to one another. We can pray for one another so that we might be healed. And it's a beautiful, beautiful perspective. Now, lastly, verse 17, we want to presume that prayer is best seen retrospectively. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years and six months, and it did not rain on the earth. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Presumed prayer is best seen retrospectively. Um, I love verse 17 because it says, uh, in the other translations, Elijah was a man just like us. So it's not trying to puff up Elijah. It's trying to show the power of prayer. But the interesting thing is this. If you go back and you read the text, uh, 1 Kings 16 through 19, Elijah didn't view what was happening the way that James views it. Uh, Elijah viewed it uh, as a drought that he predicted. And then he had Ahab go look for the clouds. He had no idea that his prayer, retrospectively, was going to be seen as working. And same is for us. We can't possibly know right now. You can't possibly know in 30 days the effects of your prayer for your family, the effects of your prayer on your heart, the effects of your prayer for community. We can't possibly know, but retrospectively, we can see what God is doing. And don't forget, as we've already talked about the Trinity this morning, what happens with our theology of prayer? In prayer, even when you can't muster up a sentence that's coherent, the Holy Spirit takes your prayers makes them known, your urges, your longings, brings them to Jesus, who's the intercessor, your advocate, who sits right now at the right hand of God the Father, who then goes to the Father and advocates on your behalf because the Holy Spirit has made known your prayers to Jesus, and then the Father, who loves to give you good gifts, hears your prayers and your longings through the intercession of Jesus, through the interpretation of the Holy Spirit. And prayer is a part of that divine Trinitarian work that on this side of heaven we get to be a part of. There's maybe no greater thing that we could do and it does keep us waiting. As the Westminster Collection of Prayers, John Bell said, you keep us waiting, God, you the God of all time, and you want us to wait for the right time to discover who we are, where we go, who will be with us, and what we must do. So thank you for the waiting time in prayer. So here's how I wanna close. I wanna give you just a few minutes to pray to bring before the Lord wherever you're suffering, to bring before the Lord wherever you're cheerful, to confess your sins. And I wanna challenge some of you uh, that you have things that you need to confess to find a friend, somebody that you know in this church, call them this week and say, friend, I, I've gotta have a conversation. I just need somebody to pray for me. I need somebody to hear what I've done, what my struggle is, so that you can find healing, so that you can find grace. And then uh, let's remember and think about what God has done already in our lives retrospectively. Let's pray now. Father, we, before we run out of this room and onto our weeks, We want to pause in your presence with your people and pray to you. Father, we won't want to harbor sin in our lives. 
So we want to freely confess to you and to others. And lastly, Father, we want to bless your name. As we're about to sing, you are rich in love and you are slow to anger. And so we trust as we pray that you'll show us the grace and the forgiveness that you've already established for us by your son's death and sacrifice. And if we're struggling even to find words to our prayers, Holy Spirit, that you'd help. And that we might believe and we might presume, God, that you're working, not that you're not working. And now this week, help us to live vibrant, joyful lives of faith, trusting Jesus, living by the Spirit, and loving you, God our Father. I'm so thankful for this community of faith that we get to live within. Make uh, this church a, not only a loving community, but a courageous one, a one that uh, helps each other along the way and extends grace and forgiveness to all who find their way here. And so now, Father, as we sing this last song to you, may we praise you, may we worship you, may we fix our eyes and our thoughts, Jesus, on you. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, Chase and Catherine's newborn uh, baby boy. Uh, Chase and Catherine often come to this service or the 8.30 service usually. Sometimes they come to the 11 o'clock and they sit right back there. Because uh, y'all are creatures of habit. I know where most of you sit most of the time. So if you see a, a new uh, couple in a couple weeks with an infant back there, greet uh, Chase and Catherine and meet little baby Jack. Three babies born last week, one baby this week. Uh, so a lot more kids being added to our mix. I'm going to um, use Psalm 39 of 40 as kind of our entrance point to gather our thoughts in prayer. Uh, so let's do this before we jump into the sermon. Uh, Father, it's, it's been a week for some of us, and we have this little time to gather the first day of the week, to commit this week upcoming to you, to commit to you um, all the things in our lives that are out of our control. This little baby Jack has taken his first breaths and come into this world, and he has no idea what lies before him, and neither do we. He has also no idea how loved he is and how much the families have prepared for him. And in a similar fashion, we can't possibly know what lies ahead for us. And it's also, as much as we preach it and hear it, and try to remind ourselves it's hard to believe how much we're loved by you. And at the same time, life is amidst these children come into this world and they will experience doubts and fears, great grief and sorrow. They'll also uh, experience joy and laughter and uh, hopefully love, friendship. And Father, wherever we are in our lives right now, we're experiencing all of those types of things. But remind us this morning that life is it's just a breath. It's just a mist. We only have a few years on this side of the Jordan River before you uh, take us. Some of us have longer than others. So these days that you give us, let us number them. May we live both vibrant and sober lives, getting to know you, 
living a life for you, living one worthy of the calling that you've called us to, enjoying you, glorifying you, helping others who are sojourning along the way, giving grace and encouragement uh, to all that we come across. Make this church a loving community to do those exact things. And we pray in your name. Amen. How, how often do you judge people? Uh, notice I didn't say, do you judge people? Because let's just assume all of us do. The question is actually, how often do you make a judgment about somebody that you meet. I did my brother-in-law's wedding. This was years ago. He's a cop out in Montana in Kalispell. And I performed his wedding. And while I was performing the wedding, it was right outside Glacier National Park. I saw this guy sitting in the back. He just looked like an absolute drifter. He was all tatted up. I thought he was homeless. The clothes didn't quite match. He had a really like small like bowly tie kind of on there. I made all of these assumptions. I didn't even know if he was invited to the uh, wedding that we were at. And then he showed at the, at the reception. And so, you know, I was there at the reception, and this often happens after you do a wedding, people come up to you and say certain things about your homily and all of that. He came right up to me at the reception, and he, you know what he said? He said, you quoted Michel Foucault. And I said, I did. And I said, do you know Michel Foucault? And he said, I do. He said, I got a philosophy degree from uh, UCLA, and then I got my law degree from Harvard, and I'm out here working with Montana, helping to navigate uh, reparations with the Native Americans that live on this land. And I was like, oh my word, I completely thought you were homeless. I had, I had no idea. And we had an hour-long conversation, completely judged him, completely presumed something about him that wasn't true. Or maybe you meet somebody on the other side. They are all together. They're gorgeous. They look like they have everything. They're a couple that just looks like the perfect couple. And then you get to know them after a little bit, and you're like, oh, they're a mess. They're an absolute train wreck. We're living in a culture where we are judging people and presuming things about people so quickly. You get on the dating site, and you just look at one picture, just one picture. Swipe left or right, left or right. Just judge after judgment after judgment after judgment. You see somebody tweet something, and you make the assumption based on 140 characters of whether they're conservative or liberal. Like one little phrase, and we presume all of these things about people. That's the culture that we live in, and that's what this culture is training us to do constantly. To work from the lesser to the greater. To see something about somebody and assume all of the rest. And it's the rare occasion that we give anybody what Scripture asks us to do, which is to give people the benefit of the doubt to think more highly of others than we do of ourselves. Now, the culture is constantly training us to think that way, to do that. Scripture wants to train us a different way, but I say all of that to get us to this next point, which is this. If we do that with others, then we're going to do it with the Lord. How often do you judge God? How often do you pray a prayer and he doesn't answer it? After, after a week, after a month, after a year. And you say, see, he doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't want the best thing for me. If he did, this wouldn't have come in my life. How often do we assume that God is not working rather than presume that he is? And so the title of the sermon is Presumptive Prayer. We're going to look at James chapter 5, and I want to make four quick points. The first one is this. Let's presume that prayer helps in all circumstances. Uh, James chapter 5, verse 13 is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So James instructs here that prayer is holistic. You know, one of the beautiful things about Christianity is this, that it's not just your spirituality compartmentalized as a segment of your life. What Christianity employs is for you to use all of your life, whether you're sad, whether you're happy, to bring the Lord into all of that, to live a life in relationship with him. So if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing songs of praise. Hannah Moore was born in 1757. 
She, she was a socialite. She was born into a rich trust fund family in London. And then she became a believer because she became friends with John Newton. And John Newton led her to the Lord. After she became a believer, she gave up her affairs in London. She was a debutante there. She retired to Bristol, out to the countryside, because she was so tired of the triteness of the London scene. And she worked the rest of her life trying to defeat uh, the slave industry. Well, in her uh, life, after she retired at 28, after she retired and moved to Bristol, she got desperately sick and lived the rest of her life in affliction. And Hannah Moore writes, Affliction is the school in which great virtues are acquired and in which great characters are formed. It's a spiritual gymnasium in which the disciples of Christ are trained in robust exercise, hearty exertion, and severe conflict. We do not hear of military heroes in peacetime nor of the most distinguished saints in the quiet and unmolested periods of church history. The courage in the warrior, the devotion in the saint, continue to survive, ready to be brought into action when perils beset the country or trials assail the church. But it must be admitted that in long periods of inaction, both are susceptible to decay. In other words, you can live a life with long periods of inaction, not ever praying, not ever going to the Lord. But when the Lord brings suffering into your life, for whatever reason... It's this beautiful invitation to pray, to draw close to him, to bring him into that moment in your life so that you might develop in a way that you would never develop otherwise. It's going to do things in your life that couldn't ever happen from the comfort of your own home. It's going to bring you into this deep devotion with God. If anybody is suffering, let them pray. But if anybody is cheerful, let them sing songs of praise. Both of those we do. Now, Prayer and praise are basically the same. You remember that Henry Light hymn, uh, Jesus, I my cross have taken, perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. And that last verse where he says, faith to sight and prayer to praise. Uh, that we have faith now, one day when we see Jesus, we'll have sight. We won't have to have the faith, we'll see him. We pray now, but one day we'll just be able to praise. So they're two sides of the same coin. And so look, if you're suffering, pray. But if you're cheerful, praise. In other words, bring the Lord into every aspect of your life. I told you the story before, it was two years ago, and I remember that because I remember some of your visceral reactions at this story. 1861, Henry Brown was a slave. Uh, he's six foot one. And this group of men stuffed him into a four foot by three foot box and nailed it shut. And then they shipped him. They stamped it dry goods and they shipped him to Maryland. And he paid them to do it. Because at Maryland, there was a shopkeeper who was waiting to receive Henry, and they had made preparations for him. And the three-day journey was his journey to freedom. And they opened up the box, and he left, uh, I think, Mississippi a slave, and he arrived in Maryland free and spent the rest of his life free. And they opened that box, and you know what he did? First thing he did, not ask for food, not ask for water, he sang a psalm. You know what he sang? Psalm 40. I waited patiently. He came out of the box. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. What a beautiful picture of uh, James 5 in action. If you're suffering, I'm sure he was praying those three days in the box. But then if he's cheerful, let him sing a song of praise. Let's presume prayer helps in all circumstances. Second one is this. Let's presume prayer can bring healing. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Let's presume that prayer can bring healing. Now, this is a practice that Mitchell Rhodes still does today. 
So if you are sick, if you are afflicted, uh, please call us. We would love to gather some elders and anoint you with oil and pray. We do it quite regularly, and it, we would love to be a part of that aspect of your life. This oil is a sign, it's a biblical metaphor, it's a sign of refreshment and replenishment. It's kind of hard for us to imagine because we live in a very humid south, right? Uh, but this is a Middle Eastern culture. So everything was chapped. No, I mean, nothing, you know, they needed oil all the time, and it was a precious commodity. The way you could think about it is, think about when it's the middle of winter, and your lips are just like so, so, so chapped, and they just, they're just crunchy, you know, they feel like two Pringles on your face, and it's just awful, and you borrow chapstick from your wife, because I don't keep any, but I just borrow it from my wife, and uh, she's kind enough to let you use it, and you put the chapstick on your lips, and that, like, that moment, that's got to be one of the greatest feelings in the world, that, that moment of refreshment, that's what the oil is like, that moment of refreshment and replenishment that we're going to anoint you and say that you belong to Jesus and he wants to heal you. But here's the problem. We see people that pray that are healed, and we see people that pray that aren't healed. And we see people that have faith and pray and aren't healed, and we see people that have faith and pray and are healed. So what's the deal? For example, uh, Paul said three times, I pleaded with the Lord to take this thorn from me, 2 Corinthians. Three times. We would all believe that Paul, the, the famous apostle Paul, St. Paul had faith, right? So did he not have enough faith? Was he not praying the right way? Or how about Timothy, who never got over his stomach ill, from what we can tell? Or how about 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4 or 5, I can't remember which one it is, where Paul says, I'm leaving Erastus and Trophimus to you. They're both ill. And we believe that they all had faith, but they still were not healed. And then on the other hand, we see people that had faith who were healed. You remember the bleeding woman, Mark 5? had the courage just to go through the crowd and touch Jesus's cloak. And Jesus stopped the whole party and said, who touched me? Everybody kind of spread away and uh, he found her and he said, the only time he's ever said this about somebody, he called her daughter. And then what did he say? He said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Or blind Bartimaeus, uh, remember, blind Bartimaeus was, was crying out at the side of the road, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy upon me. And uh, every, the disciples rebuked him. They wanted him just to be quiet. And Jesus recognized him, heard his voice, and said, What do you want me to do for you? And blind Bartimaeus said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, for your faith has made you well. So is it an issue of having faith or not having faith? That's what other theologies would have you believe, right? I'm not going to go into what denominations and theologies, but other denominations and theologies would say, if you're not healed, it's because you didn't pray the right way, or you just didn't have enough faith. But what is it? It is hard. This is why Christians get mocked. Christians get mocked over these kind of issues because of March Madness. Let me explain. We all watched the Furman game, not yesterday. Let's forget about that one the prior Furman game, the first Furman game. And uh, we watched them take out uh, UVA, which was glorious. Uh, all of my wife's family are all UVA grads. Uh, so I picked them for my bracket, but I was rooting for Furman in my heart because I'm Greenvillian, right? And in the last seconds, we were watching it in my office, actually. Um, when it got down to two minutes, a bunch of people gathered around my computer. We watched it in my office those last seconds. And do you remember that picture of the girl with 34 seconds left? They cut to this girl who was in the auditorium, in the Coliseum, and that girl was praying. She had her hands up. I mean, she was not singing a song. She was just invoking the name of the Holy of Holies to come down into that arena at that very moment on behalf of the paladins. I mean, it was obvious what she was doing. I mean, she was going for it. I would have loved to have heard that prayer. 
Jesus, I know I haven't talked to you since high school, and uh, I, you know, let's just forget about my freshman year. Forgive me for everything that happened there, but I've never asked you for anything. If you just help me, 34 seconds, if you help us, I mean, I just would have loved to like, hear what she was actually asking Jesus to do at that moment. But it was obvious she was praying, just had her hands up, invoking the name of God himself. And then a couple of days later, Fairleigh Dickinson, um, did everybody Google Fairleigh Dickinson? Because I had no idea who they were. <laughs> Knocked off the Boilermakers. 34 seconds left in that game. They cut to another picture. Purdue Boilermakers sweatshirt woman. Hands literally clasped like this. Praying. Just at, beseeching the Holy of Holies to come down and to save Purdue. So what's happening there? You see... When the world looks at Christians, that's what they see. And that's all on national TV. And they're showing pictures of people asking for God himself, the holy of holies, to come down and to change the outcome of a basketball game. And people who aren't believers look at that and say, what gives? Does the Furman girl have more faith than the Purdue girl? Like, does faith actually work? And that's become a serious study. Matter of fact, there's two major studies on the issue of whether prayer is actually effective. The first one is 2003 from Duke. They studied 750 uh, cardiac arrest patients. And they had blind groups and they had control groups uh, and they had people praying, different denominations, blind prayers, and people that were intercessing from a Christian perspective, all, some that knew them, some that didn't. The second one was the Templeton Foundation funded the study, 1,800 people, and they studied it, and they did the same thing. And what Richard Sloan from Columbia University Medical School said is this. They have absolutely no idea how prayer works in any of these groups. If we can't know that, we can't draw any conclusions whatsoever about the intervention. And in the abstract from the American Psychological Report, they said, we believe that this research has led nowhere and that future research, if any, will forever be constrained by the scientific limitations that we now will outline. In other words, it's the pride of the human heart that make us believe that for prayer to work, we've got to be able to measure how quickly we can manipulate God. How quickly he will respond to our police. And if he doesn't respond, matter of fact, the Duke study had to see some kind of difference in the patients over a period of 30 days. <laughs> so we're only going to give God 30 days to work. And, and the whole kind of prideful heart of prayer is we've got to be able to see it and we've got to be able to measure it. So why pray? Here's why. Because God is way more mysterious than we could ever imagine. And way more providential and way more sovereign, and way more loving, and way more kind. He's a father who loves to give us good gifts. He's a God that invites us, whether we're cheerful or whether we're sad, into our presence, into his presence. He's a God that says, it doesn't matter how you're doing, you can feel shame, you can feel guilt, you can feel pain, you can feel doubts, I welcome you because I want to be your God. And I want you to be my people. And I want to get to know you. And I want to love you. And I want to heal you. You know, prayer doesn't always work the way we think it would. This past Christmas, um, one of you said to me, Andy, would you pray for me? My family is coming into town for Christmas. And it's going to be a train wreck. It's a train wreck every year. And I said, of course, I'd love to pray for you. And so I did. I prayed for that family uh, all Christmas week. Saw that individual in the new year, right after uh, the calendar crossed over. And I said, how did it go? And she said, um, God answered your prayers. I said, he did, that's awesome. Uh, what happened? She said, it was a complete train wreck. It happened, the same thing happened that happens every year. My parents poured shame out on me. My sister got in a fight with my mom. The whole thing, the, the Christmas Eve meal that was supposed to be this thing, you know, just total disaster. But I was at complete peace the whole time. And I felt a presence of Jesus. 
and I was able to worship and love in the middle of all of that. Yes, it didn't change the dysfunction of my family, but it changed the dysfunction of my heart. Let's presume that prayer can heal in ways that we can't imagine. And then let's presume that prayer develops the community that we want and need. Uh, Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. There's a beautiful picture here that prayer and asking for prayer is how we actually develop community. Um, And that part of prayer is growing uh, through our sickness of sin, that sin can actually make us sick. And so if you combine that end of verse 16 with verse 15, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you might be healed because it's our sin that starts to make us sick as well as our sickness. But you probably remember uh, Psalm 30. My bones waxed old while I was in my sin. Or you might remember the scientific study of um, Bessel van der Beek, who wrote that book, The Body Keeps the Score, about long-term stress or long-term anxiety, how it actually changed your physiological connections. And Jesus recognizes the same thing. He heals in John chapter 5, the man who is lying on the mat. And then after he was healed, Jesus came back and he found him. And he said to him, now go and sin no more so that nothing worse would happen to you. Don't sin anymore because that's way worse than being an invalid. And so what scripture tells us again and again and again is if you want health, if you want healing, learn how to, with regularity, confess your sins and confess your sins one to another. Now, let me just give you a vision for this real quickly, and then we'll move on to the next point. This is the beauty of Christianity. One of the beautiful things about Christianity is God says, I want to create a community that is the opposite of a cancel culture. It's the opposite of a culture where you have to live perfectly. It's the opposite of the culture where you have to have it all together. I want to create a community on that side of the Jordan River before we create the new heavens and the new earth where you can look at each other, confess your sins to each other, eyeball to eyeball, and find healing. We just don't do it. The reason why so many of us are sick, even physically so, is because we're holding in all of this sin because we just presume that if we share it, people aren't going to forgive us. People aren't going to give grace to us or won't give forgiveness to us. But it's the biggest joy of the Christian to be able to extend forgiveness and grace to all who need it. That's what Christian community does. We get the opportunity. Think about this, friends. You get the opportunity to hear somebody else Share their problems, their sorrows, their doubts, their fears, and their sins with you, and you get the opportunity to tell them that they're forgiven or loved. That is glorious. Why don't we do that more? We're just prideful, and we presume that people won't give us grace. I've got a couple of messages on my phone that I keep. One's for my daughter, Um, the one that called me on my birthday. Not all my kids called me, but one did. If you call me on my birthday and you're my uh, prodigy, then uh, I keep your message. And I I can't listen to it because I just cry every time I listen to it uh, after I get over her calling me an old man, which was the first sentence. Uh, But after I get past that, another message I have is this message um, from a friend. I don't know him well. He lives in town, doesn't go to this church. He called me two years ago, and he said, I I don't know where else to go. Can I come to your office? I need to confess something. And he came to the office, and he just poured his heart out. And I told him what you would tell him. It's going to be okay. Jesus loves you. You're forgiven. We're going to get you out of this. So now he drives, on the way to work, he drives down East North Street, 
And if that light's red at, over here, if that light's red at East North Street, he'll call my phone and he'll leave a message. And usually the message is this. Thank you so much for giving me grace. I didn't give him grace. Jesus gave him grace. I just told him what Jesus gave him. But for two years now, he calls me almost every time he hits a red light there. Thank you so much for hearing my confession and giving my grace. This is the way to find healing. And I want to challenge us to live courageously this way. I want to challenge you that if you have something in your heart, in your life, that is just badgering you, that is beating you up, that you can't find healing from, that you find somebody this week and you call them up and you say, I need to confess eyeball to eyeball and I just need you to pray for me. Because here's the deal. In this culture that we live in, we're seeing all of these things on a macro level that we can't control. Stuff about elections, uh, stuff about people getting beat up, stuff about cities going horribly wrong. We, we see all of these macro things. You know what's gonna change the world? The micro connections. Eyeball to eyeball, creating a community here in this church where we confess to each other and we find healing. Lastly, Let's presume that prayer is best seen retrospectively. It closes with uh, verse 17 in this analogy of Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain on the earth. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, this is interesting, because first of all, it says he's a man, another translation is, He's a man just like us. So first of all, it wants to say, here's Elijah. He's just like you. Don't think he's this like spiritual giant. And then it gives the impression that Elijah could just pray and actually change uh, the environment. Like, could that be true? The fascinating thing about this is when this is recorded in 1 Kings 16 through 19, Elijah didn't view it that way. He viewed it as predicting a drought, and then he saw a storm coming, and he asked Ahab to go outside and look at the clouds. So James views Elijah's prayers in a way that Elijah doesn't view Elijah's prayers. In other words, retrospectively, we have no idea how effective our prayers could be. You have no idea what your prayers for your family might do generations from now. You have no idea what your prayers for peace might do years from now. We just have no possible idea. And so we live a life of faith because here's what's happening theologically, and I'm going to close with this. What's happening theologically when you pray is that whatever utterings, whatever groans you can even get out of your mouth, somehow the Holy Spirit interprets and understands and takes those prayers to Christ who lives to intercede for you, is right now seated at the right hand of God the Father, who is your advocate, who will then take those prayers and on your behalf, take them to God the Father who hears them and who loves them and who will answer them according to his sovereign pleasure and for your good. It is a Trinitarian endeavor that you and I get to be a part of anytime we want to, day or night. It's a a privilege unlike any other in the Christian life. It's absolutely, what we understand theologically about prayer is absolutely, unbelievably humbling that God himself would hear your prayers interpreted by the Holy Spirit, advocated to the Father through Christ, and then taken into his counsel and will as a father who loves you and wants to give you good gifts. And so friends, let's presume that prayer seen retrospectively will work. Let's presume that we can actually be healed in this life when we confess to each other and when we learn to pray to each other. And what if we could be that church that constantly and continuously, instead of having to live with this veneer that we do sometimes in the South, constantly and continually will call each other up and will say, 
can I confess to you? Will you remind me who Jesus is, that he's enough? And would you pray for me this week? What if we could live that way, like really live that way? Well, we'd only see more healing. And we'd only see more intimacy and we'd only see more joy and more life together. So let's pray now. Father, we want to pause and we want to pray.